We are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the first webinar of our July 2015 series titled Learning and Leading in, Co in a Connected World with Educator Innovator, National Writing Project, and Ed Contexts. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. I'm Joe Dillon. I'm with the Denver Writing Project and I work here in the Denver area at the Aurora Public Schools. We're thrilled to be speaking with some connected learners who bring their passion for equity to this, to this conversation so we can discuss the intersection of equity issues and educational change that we experience or see in our various contexts. Because this conversation coincides with the Connected Learning MOOC or CL MOOC, we also hope, and hope to discuss the equity issues inherent in open online learning and perhaps unpack the promise we see in open online learning like connected courses or CL MOOC. So before we get started, I'd just like to say that each week throughout this series on Connected Learning TV, we'll be exploring themes and questions related to CL MOOC, but we'll also think about how they relate to broader discourses around education and learning, with particular emphases, emphases on equity and contextual considerations. So just a note about what CL MOOC is really quickly, it's a massive open online collaboration that's in its third iteration this summer. And that, that online professional learning is really geared to get participants making and sharing, working in you know, a networked, openly networked channels. And then every week, participants are prompted to think about connected learning principles and values as lenses for reflection. So today, I'm here talking with Mahana Bali, Chris Rogers, Sam Sharma, and Laura Chernowitz. Before we dive into our chat, let's go over a couple quick details. To those of you watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions, either via the Twitter hashtags, CLMOOC, or Connected Learning, or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout. I'd like to give everyone a chance to quickly introduce themselves and their organization. Chris, do you want to start? Yeah, hey everybody. Um, Chris Rogers here. I'm in the NWP office, National Writing Project office in Philadelphia. Um, I'm a facilitator as part of CL MOOC, um, educator in Philadelphia as a media and technology specialist um, for Green Street Friends. And other than that, a lot, a lot of teacher networks, a lot of community events, and really trying to stay connected to the grassroots and really try to bridge uh, community spaces together here in Philadelphia and sites of learning across the community. Um, so glad to be here and glad to be in conversation with you all. Hi, um, this is Sam Sarma. Um, along with um, Maha Bali, I'm part of the uh, Ed Context team. Uh, which is attempting to connect educators across uh, contexts and cultures and countries around the world. Um, I am an assistant professor of writing and rhetoric at Stony Brook University, part of the State University of New York system. And I'm um, interested, fascinated, curious to learn more about the issues of technology and equity in the context of online and open uh, learning spaces and communities and collaboration. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation with colleagues here. Uh-huh. And Laura, would you introduce Laura. yourself, please? Sure. I'm Laura Chernovich. I'm um, 
from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. So I'm very happy to be here. It's very late at night. Um, I'm the director for the Center for Innovation in Learning and Teaching, which is part of a faculty type structure which uh, focuses very strongly on higher education development. And it's a particularly interesting university because it's a top-ranked research university with a strong equity history and imperative. Uh, very mindful its of its place in South Africa. So I'm really happy to be part of this discussion tonight, today. And Laura is also part of Ed Contexts, <laughs> which she forgot to say. Um, I'm Maha Bailey. I am an associate professor of practice at uh, the Center for Learning and Teaching of the American University in Cairo. It's also 10 p.m. over here. I think that's the same time it is for Laura. But I don't consider that late at night. That's that's normal for me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and as Sam said, I we Sam and I co-founded at Context, and Laura was with us from the very beginning. And also Joe, when Joe started using the hashtag for Techwity, I was there at the beginning of that too. And and I know that everyone here in this room is someone who cares about equity and technology. And and I hope to talk about other people who have been writing and talking about these issues, and to also address how it applies to people in my side of the world. Um, and with um, with MOOCs and, and so on. So I'm, I'm a great fan of CL MOOC. This is my second time participating in it. Um, and I think there have been already quite a few uh, equity conversations there, so I hope those come up in the conversation. Yeah, and I think that gives us a, just a little bit of background to, to jump into this conversation about equity. You, you know, as Maha alluded to, it was about, I think, last October when on Twitter a few of a few folks I'm connected with on Twitter and I were going back and forth um, saying that we needed a hashtag that that considerations with ed tech considerations because I know as a you know as a learner and someone who's interested in equity I was seeing a lot of really compelling research and conversations but I felt like there was no tag for that and so, so in a kind of a funny exchange uh, on Twitter we sort of narrowed down some hashtags that we'd proposed to this, you know, clunky techwity that to some degree has stuck. But uh, sometimes since then people have asked me sort of like to define terms or clarify what it en encompasses and what it doesn't. And I think my thinking is, is instead of trying to narrow like what you might tag in terms of techwity, it really has provided me a space to think about like what other people see as important equity considerations. So instead of trying to, you know, again, pursue a fine point of any one definition of equity, it brought we could potentially broaden the conversation about what is equity to us. So with that in, as background, maybe we can start by talking about some equity issues that arise for each of us or are compounded when schools or educational institutions endeavor to keep pace with cultural changes re resulting from our increasingly wired world. So, uh, Joe, do, do we want to uh, pick some of the questions that we have been uh, uh, sharing, or do we want to make it even more even more open-ended? I would leave it to you. I think you're certainly welcome to prompt the group of questions, or we can start by identifying like central equity considerations in our own contexts. I guess I'll, I'll just throw one on the table, see um, if we want anybody wants to pick it up or build on it. 
Um, so the first question that I had when I was trying to uh, come up with a list of questions was, would you say that the rapid emergence of new technologies, everything always new, is producing more vulnerabilities than it is serving and connecting people and communities today? And by vulnerabilities, I'm thinking about, you know, um, uh, spaces uh, where situations where we are not aware of weaknesses uh, of what we don't know and 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 on and, and how we obscure things because we are excited about one thing and are not uh, ignoring other things such as access such as equity. Yeah, I mean, um, is this the open floor for now? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean. Um, in, in, in my work and how, how I come to uh, think of it, and I, I love that you pointed out, Sam, about like the idea of like newness, right? And because for me, the problem has never, the problems have never resided within the technology. I think it's important to like remind ourselves of that. The problem has always been socially constructed by us, people, um, and, then, and then projected into the technology that we're using. So when I, when I think about um, equity, I mean, even in the, the global context that we're, we're in right now, you talk about, uh, like, colonialism, imperialism, um, sort of like structural, um, st structural poverty, uh, capitalism, um, racism, militarism, all these things are um, resided, you know, they, they, they resided before... We, we go into creating new technologies with these ideas already in our mind. Um, so to me, the, the real equity work is making those things visible uh, and, and opening, our, opening ourselves to understand how they have influenced why we design and how we think about innovation. And, um, and let me take the ideas that Sam and Chris are saying and talk about them in a more concrete way and, and very practical examples of those. So, I mean, I, I like what Joe said at the beginning about expanding our understanding of what, uh, act, what, what an equity issue is. So it could go from uh, people having infrastructure access to technology to culturally not understanding how they use this technology because they don't have the digital literacy, to gender issues, uh, to accessibility issues because they're colorblind or whatever. Um, and so, so there's, for example, if we think about some MOOCs, and there are MOOCs where a lot of what you do with the MOOC involves using video, for example. And that automatically makes it difficult for people who don't have the infrastructure for the video and people who don't have the time to sit and listen and watch a one-hour video because they're busy people or they're women and they don't have the time for that. There are certain MOOCs that I participated in where you had to sit on a computer and do a lot of things whereas I'm always on a mobile device because I'm busy taking care of my child or commuting to work, and sitting on a computer means I have to be doing actual work, I can't be doing, you know, extra stuff, and so by doing things like that, you're, you're excluding someone, not because it's impossible necessarily for them to do it, but it's just very difficult. So I think the important thing is, is being open to those conversations and, allow, and allowing for different op options for you know, the, the technology can be used to exclude, but it can also be used to include in ways that are not possible otherwise. And I don't want to, to go all out and be angry at technology. I mean, Sam and I wrote an article with two parts. One where we were angry at the technology, and one where we were saying, well, these are the ways you can use it well. And, um, and in other ways, the technology actually brings us together, right? And it, redu and it reduces inequities by allowing all of us right here to be talking together about this, when otherwise we wouldn't have this opportunity. So.
Sam, you need to unmute yourself. We can't hear you. Uh, related to what Chris was saying earlier, um, he brought up the issue of power and militarism and all those kinds of problems in the world, and those could be intensified by the um, by the power of technologies as well as undermined by the power of technologies. And so what we need to do as educators is to point out when people are all excited about how they're going to change the world with these new technologies, how they're going to make education accessible, how they're going to make um, knowledge transparent, open, and so forth, we, we've got to really challenge where uh, they're just, they're, their claims, their bombastic, often megalomaniac claims about changing the world in a positive way is only driven by the same kinds of uh, power and domination that do not really uh, think about issues of access and issues of equity for people around the world. So uh, I think I think there's an interesting role that we can play as educators by uh, highlighting some of the pitfalls in spite of the great affordances of technology. Um. I'm really interested in the fact that you spoke about both the pluses and the minuses, Maha. Um, I think there's a really interesting example that's been happening at my university. I don't know if you know about the roads must fall hashtag and the roads must fall movement, but uh, the students at, our, at, the, at my university have been very, very active recently and the roads must fall hashtag rose in response to the removal of a very prominent statue of Cecil John Rhodes, which stood right at the front of the university and became the epitome and the exemplification of an, a whole range of concerns to do with the curriculum, to do with issues of equity, to do with uh, uh, racism, to do with a number of concerns. What was particularly interesting about this was the fact that it spread to student movements across the world on social media. So the, the first week that we ran our first MOOC, which was a really big deal for us, we had about a thousand tweets on Twitter, but in the first weeks of the Roads Must Fall movement, there were 500,000 tweets with the Roads Must Fall hashtag. So it was an incredibly interesting example of equity issues being taken online across student movements across the world. Can you spell out the hashtag, Laura? Uh, roads must fall. So Cecil John Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, must fall. Yes, I mean, and Laura, um, what, a, what a connection, right? I, I did read uh, one article about that from the website. It's called... Um, in a funny way, Africa is a country. It's trying to really right. kind of build right. yeah, yeah. And I, I saw that, right? And, and you talk about like these waves and these currents, right? And in the United States right now, right? We just had, um, well, a, 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 a mass murder a uh, number of weeks ago in Charleston. Um, and then that led to really point ourselves at the Confederate flag um, that was used as a sort of like a symbol of uh, southern slave states. And that's been a movement, right? It was a whole movement that we had about take down the flag, right? And we talk about these symbols, and when we talk about like the pluses and minuses, how the the, the ability of technologies to bring us together, and to sort of like be, uh, be beyond those borders and boundaries that have been, you know, artificially created, you know, <laughs> over time. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
That's, that's awesome. That's an awesome connection. I'm glad I got to hear that Chris, story. have you seen how the uh, Salston issues and the Confederate flag, flag issues have featured uh, on the media and if they have any connection to student activism and things like that in our part of the world? Uh, definitely. I think um, you, you said earlier, Sam, about how technology can be used to undermine. Um, and I, I know a lot of people like to, I know Mahas in Egypt, they really like to point to like the Arab Spring as like this moment of where Twitter and Facebook and these technologies. But, you know, also we had to balance that. Well, there's, there's a feeling that's, that resides within the people that came to those technologies. It's not something that the technology just created on its own. Um, so I think it's, it, I think it's important to, to, to note that, like, definitely, Sam, like, there's, a, there's, there's millions of us that all are going through the same things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether by some sort of form of oppression or another. And I think mm-hmm. uh, by sharing our stories, which technology which, uh, technologies a- allow us to do um, in ways that can sort of go across uh, these different uh, sort of like boundaries and, and silos, right? And so mm-hmm. we're able to collaborate better. We can we can see how we're all connected, and I think that that feeling is uh, is is really important. There's also, but there's a, I don't know. I've, I've been talking too much. I'm trying to find out where I'm going with it. So I'm going to go on mute for a second and think about it. Maybe I'll come <laughs> back with it later. But okay. somebody would love to take it. So it's great that you mentioned the Arab Spring because I was just about to to mention this and and to compare this to surveillance and algorithms, right? So the Arab Spring is an example of how young people were able to communicate in, in, in you know, um, subversive ways because the government and, and older people were not on Twitter and not so much on Facebook, right? But on the other hand, it, it became a space now where anything you, you write on the internet can be used against you and not in a funny way. Like, I think when people in the U.S. talk about their anger at surveillance, they have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about imprisonment and torture, and I just said that on a Google Hangout and somebody's going to see that I've said that, you know, and it's a huge issue. Um, and then the other side of that is also the ways in which these media control what we see. So I'm uh, in the same continent as Laura, and I haven't heard of Roads uh, Must Fall, but my mm-hmm. Twitter timeline is full of people in the U.S. who are liberals, and I was mm-hmm. reading about the Confederate flag. I watch uh, U.S. TV on satellite, but I don't watch South African TV on satellite. <laughs> I'm aware of what's happening in the Arab world, but I don't know what else is happening anywhere else in Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is like almost another planet for me, whereas the U.S. feels much closer. And so the like the issues of the Confederate flag for me were much closer to me than they, they, they shouldn't be, but they were. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's so, so interesting. interesting. It's interesting what, how we just de- develop terms of global conversation and on who, on whose terms those terms are created. Yeah, yeah. Whose 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 social discourses become interesting, relevant, important. I guess technology facilitates that process, as well, as well as us who are agents using the technology. Uh, can I ask a second question? Then we have a bunch here. Um, how do the challenges then, because I wanted to ask this question at this point because Chris brought that up and Maha is all actually bringing that up again. How do the challenges compare, uh, the challenges of equity, educational and technological equity compare within national slash geopolitical borders and across those contexts? What are the unique challenges in our different contexts? I'm, I'm interested because we are all from different parts of the world right in this conversation and I'm thinking what are those some of the barriers that may be unique and different in different places? Can we want to, do you want to delve a little deeper into that question? 
I think yeah. I might. Yeah, yeah please don't. Yep. So in my context, I work in a in a public education K twelve context, and I work as a technology coordinator. And so, and many of the schools we work with are are urban and have socioeconomic challenges, and students face various risk factors. You know, we represent. You know, our schools often see influxes of refugees, etc. And so, what I see in terms of some of the equity issues that arise here is really, you know, it's it's really related to the the learning needs of the educators who serve this diverse community that you know are faced with with all these risk factors and so often some of the things that bother me is like the vendor driven discourse around educational technology that can often be the first message they hear you know and to me you know it, it leads to the fetishization of the tools and the apps and we also and we can sometimes sometimes you know pre-service teachers or teachers new to the the, uh, the profession can can think that you know these tools themselves like will do something right and so I think I think that's a challenge to equity is the vendor message that so often the app is the solution but I also have to say that I've really been buoyed and encouraged by how quickly teachers gravitate and how much they say this concept of tequity resonates with them. So even a, t even a teacher who will be self-deprecating about, I'm, I'm so far behind in technology, I need help, you know, they will articulate equity issues in their classroom right away about access, about, you know, about the, you know, the kinds of things students are engaged in online, like are they skill and drill or are they, are students engaged in complex problems. So I see the challenges because with all these stakeholders with such, you know, huge learning needs, there's an opportunity for vendors to come in and, and you know, hijack that conversation that wow. is better spent on equity. How about Laura was going to say something? I think. Yeah, that that was so interesting. The the role of vendors and the predominance that they have in your context. Um, I don't think we see that in quite the same way here, but. Um, I mean, I think it, there, there's someone called uh, Thurborn who talks about different types of inequality and, and I have found that really helpful because he differentiates between resource inequality and what he calls existential inequality. And I think that uh, very often the focus is on the resource inequalities which are not insignificant and certainly we can talk about those, those are really serious, but I think that what we've seen really emerge in our context lately through these kinds of student movements have actually been around what one would call existential inequalities. And that's about um, sense of uh, autonomy, about dignity, about freedom. And, and the, the interesting thing about I think the online space and the move to online courses and online provision is that it, it, makes, it moves from the local to the global. And so for those of us in Africa, we are mindful of being um, markets and we are mindful of being on the receiving end of new courses and new possibilities, either, um, I mean, I'm talking about formal and informal through, through, through traditional credit-bearing courses and through uh, MOOCs. And 
the, the kind of content that's made available, the kind of curricula, the kind of knowledge that's being shared with us um, is, is often on a kind of broadcast model and I think that there, there, the, the, there's a strong push to decolonize the curriculum which is linked to what's going on in that online space and how people are not seeing themselves represented and not seeing themselves having agency. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the reasons we, we founded Ed Context, right, is to provide room for those voices that are not normally heard. And, um, exactly. Both, both open up the conversation for people like us with each other, but also for people from the West to listen to us from our, on our terms, you know. And, um, and again, one of the things that Sam and I were talking about is that it's never enough for um, someone to speak about others who are different than themselves. You need to create room for others to speak for themselves on their own terms in whatever way they want to and um, in some ways I guess having Sam and me uh, co-facilitating this whole series for this month is, is one way of um, anti-colonial practice you know having mm -hmm. us giving us the space to choose how we want to handle this and we're including other people from Ed Context like Laura and and then also intersecting with CL MOOC so that we have a wider audience also to listen to what we have to say mm -hmm. that in itself is, is helpful and but again we're using English which is not my first language Sam's first language um, we're using the technology of the West that people are used to using. You know, I mean, all these issues that are still on own turf. For Laura and me, it's ten in, at night, so of course our intellectual concentration is probably not the same as people for whom it's like. And your line is cutting um, off a little bit for me too, because. Okay, I'll I'll move over to someone else. I head over to someone. Else. No, it's good. I, I I feel like the the point you made though is a, is a beautiful, beautiful one. Like when I was thinking about what what like just making the connection for me is um like when Joe talks about the, the vendors, right? It's um you know it's something about like how political economy works that some the the control of the conversation, right? And who's controlling? Sam talked about this too. Like who's controlling the conversation? And it, it's about like putting those borders, those barriers. To entry, so that 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 we that we don't connect. That I have to continue to come back to the vendors, right? Instead of being able to talk um, amongst other people. And I think as as we move into this global, um, these, we it, it should be global conversations, right? But for the most part, if we if we look at by like the, <laughs> you got these things like with like the G20 summits or whatever, where it's we have the people at the top who are coming together and having these conversations they have translators and this that and a third but when when at a time do we uh, sort of like uh, in a very positive sense the lay people the uh, are are having these talks are, are are sharing our issues are sharing our concerns are sharing our critiques are are sharing the things that happen in our country are sharing the things that um, you know our, our fears of each other as well um, we talk about these existential uh, threats. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm trying to pick up on what you said. And I hope people will recognize it then, and um, let's just keep going in the conversation. Sammy, you still on mute? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I keep forgetting. Uh, uh, I think you kind of wonderfully uh, magnified what Laura was saying, but the, the two terms that the Laura, that Laura introduced was amazing, powerful, because on the one hand is the resource and the material, 
The other one is the human and the existence. Because if you, on the, yes, we really need to think about the material, lack of material resources in the technology and, and the economic and political. Uh, but the, on the other hand, if we don't have the people engaged in understanding uh, these issues, <laughs> we will not create equitable you know, conditions for people to participate, for people to fight injustice and so forth. I, uh, I'm thinking particularly when Chris talks, when Maha talks, when uh, Laura brings in this issue, I'm fascinated by how, or rather kind of depressed by how in the United States at this time, it is so unfashionable to talk about power on a global scale. It is as if all of us need to pretend that this country is doing good for all of humanity and those of us who say things like, you use even the terms like colonialism or post-colonialism or militarism sound like we are conspiracy theorists. How have people and systems managed to push us, us, critical thinkers, talking about these basic things of fact that are happening right now around the world, describing these I'm reminded of the quote by George Orwell who said, in times of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I feel like describing those simple things like existential or colonial or militarism, to me, after living in this country for almost a decade, sound like, did I just say something so terrible that I have jeopardized my own professional and social career in this country? And I can't believe that because living under the king and a monarchy in my home country 10, 20 years ago, we were constantly afraid of things, but it wasn't that bad. And I'm thinking, what a paradox that we're not even engaging in this real conversations about people's life and survival, people's security and threat, people's privacy and sovereignty. And we're afraid to use the terms in academic and intellectual conversation. I'm now listening to a national conversation that the industry is going to take over. One of the presidential candidates in the United States is going to completely sell the, the uh, university system to private corporations. And I'm wondering, wow, how have we evolved into the 21st century as, a, as, as an international community? We have stopped talking about colonial and post-colonial conditions. Wow. Yeah, I, I know Maha... Uh, before we heard it felt like a baby noise, she was ready and she had something. I can't wait for her to get back. Um, but it's sort of we got some we got some questions coming in too. Um, yes. But I, I want and I want to what, what I want to do is just make a connection between that right the the fears right and then mm -hmm. how do, how do those fears play into our daily classroom? Yes. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm in I'm in an environment right where um, they say why should kids have cell phones? Kids don't need cell phones in the classroom. They're going to be distracted. They're not going to be listening. And it, it, they, you see, you feel like this whole politics of fear, right? Of like, if we, if we, if we, if we give more control to the people, they're not going to listen to us. And um, you, you see how on just a micro level that happens, right? And how how that uh, creates the idea. And Mahad, I believe, talked about this earlier about what's difficult, what's difficult to do. And I think in so many ways we impose our own difficulties. Onto other people, onto other countries, onto other, uh, onto curriculum, onto questions, right? Instead mm -hmm. of just struggling through them together. Um, so I just wanted to make that connection, and um, hopefully Maha comes back. And we do have some other questions. I don't know if you wanted to point them out. Okay. Law, uh, uh, Laura or Joe, do you want to pick up something or respond to some of the one of the questions? 
And remember, we were talking about different contexts in which we are thinking about these things. I hope I made sense in terms of the American context of talking about equity and how it is unfunny and unfashionable and un, you know, wanted that we even talk about issues of access and equity. But um, Sam, I'm really interested in what you're saying because the literature that I read from here Mm -hmm. has the American press talking about inequality as the number one problem. So how do oh, you talk about kind of how do you how do you talk about inequality and not talk about power? Uh, no no that's a different kind of inequality. That's economic inequality that has become a political football, but inequality on a global scale. Inequality in terms of nations dominating nations, nations invading nations, or people being marginalized because they look different. Right? But these things are not talked about. You can't. You can talk about inequality on a national scale, except for certain groups of people. You can talk in bland terms. You cannot talk in concrete terms. And then you cannot talk about inequality and inequity on transnational and global terms. No. Nobody is interested. They will yawn at you. And so I'm not saying that somebody is actively suppressing or oppressing. It's simply that it is unfashionable and, uh, you know, it's just, I look around and I think, why haven't these philosophers and English study scholars and um, critical theorists and political scientists not been talking about these things? Is it just a deafening silence on the Western Front? And that influences educational issues and technological issues as well. I think in, I think in the South African context, it is a burning issue. Wow. You should lead. I was saying the other day, we, it's time to listen to South African scholars once again. Yes. Yeah. I think, um, and, and what's what's uh, what uh, what's mindful of that, and when we talk about like technology in the classroom and how we how we're going about teaching, um, is that we we not only talk about sort of like this transnational inequality, but we rare we rarely talk about how we are the creators and the 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 maintainers of it, right? Uh -huh. um, especially in the American context, right? Um, rarely do we. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about the classes I got to teach. Is like how, I, I want to get to a point where we can talk about ourselves and the, the 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 crimes and the consequences of those crimes that that we have that we participate in that we benefit from. And mm -hmm. when we when we talk about uh, technology and equity, and uh, I see a question from Terry about like news and ideas. Yes, we are always filtering, right? And in, in many ways, we are always filtering news and ideas for our own benefit so we can be more comfortable with how we live, right? And this happens in classrooms all the time. You talk about how uh, American history is taught, um, how world history is taught, right? And who's, yep. who's positioned as the quote-unquote winners and losers, right? Nobody's ever, um, no cultures are just like different, right? It's, it's always a... Uh, um, exoticizing or a erasure of some cultures. We're never just equally embraced. Um, so how how are we how are we going about um, breaking those conversations? And how are we using technology to be able to share these stories yes. and these these critiques? Right. And um, yeah, let I me, mean, let it's, me just plug in that we will address these issues head on. I think in the educational and cross-cultural and cross-contextual context uh, 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 perspective in the last session of this series, the Ed Context on July 27, Maha? Right? Probably. I don't think we've confirmed the date, but yeah, probably. Okay. 
other questions that we want to pick? Um, I saw a question there by Jeffrey Kiefer, and he's saying, I used to be more of a critical theorist, though started to become uncomfortable with some of the perspectives. And I think he's talking more towards, um, I think he's more of a postmodernist. And it's, it's a very interesting thing, because a lot of people that I know, well, maybe not a lot, but a few people that I know start out being critical and then become more postmodernist. And I think the... The, the main thing for me personally is that I think you can have a postmodern sensibilities that doesn't exclude you from being critical, but just makes you realize that you can't follow any grand narratives of empowerment. Yes. You realize that there's a lot of contextual and local ways of being critical within a, a particular context, and that there's a lot of intersectionality in every context. So like we were saying right. here, there's, there's some ways in, this, in which this is an anti-colonial uh, meeting that we're having right now, but in other ways it's still pretty colonial. <laughs> and so I think <laughs> I think there's there's there, I think you can't stop seeing the different ways of seeing the same thing. It's a bit like quantum mechanics. Yeah. Like it can be one thing, and then if you look at it from a different perspective, it's another thing, and and they're both true in some sense. And that, and that's yeah. also a little bit why it's difficult for some people to understand that because they have such different perspective. And it is when we give them good... our perspective, they're like, "What are you talking about? That's not happening." And, and I'm thinking that kind of multi-perspective and a dualism, a, a, a ambiguity and, and, and confusion even, is a, it's very useful in the academic context. We shouldn't celebrate technology as, oh, this is, will change, is a game changer, or we should reject it and sit there and complain. Or It's, it's the same thing with the, these issues about colonialism and other existential issues of tech, where technology comes into place. Um, so... Uh, I, I'm thinking about the benefits instead of the loss when we dare to go beyond and question power and structure. If there is uh, English studies, somebody said recently that the best gift of English studies is post-colonialism, not the colonial canon. <laughs> so it just opens up people's minds and these questioning technology can produce the best discourses about technology, best uses of technology. Questioning power can make use of the best um, understanding and best education vis-a-vis uh, -vis power and, and equality in society. So what the, the, the idea that if we question, we are re denying, rejecting, uh, defending, uh, right, that we are Luddites, is just silly because it just narrows our mind if we don't question things. Right. And so let, let me talk about a couple of people who talk practically about techity issues. They don't use the term techity, but they talk about them quite a lot. And about how you use it in your own classroom. So we've been talking now about, you know, the on a global scale, but I'd like to take things down to the classroom level. So mm -hmm. Chris Schaffer, um, who's at hyperpedagogy, and he's, he's giving a course on flipped classroom later this month. Mm -hmm. But he wrote an article a few uh, months ago called Homework is a Social Justice Issue. And he talks about, not only from the technology side, but also from the non-tech side, how when you assign homework, you make assumptions about equality among students and the amount of time they'll be able to, to work on it, the amount of, you know, the kind of concentration they can get at home. And you don't think about, first of all, if you assign things like streaming video for a flipped classroom, you're not taking account of the infrastructure that the students have. The access they have to sitting on a computer. For example, I teach uh, sometimes adult women, and adult women don't have that time. They don't have their own computer, for example, and they have to ask someone to leave the computer so that they can work. Mm. Uh, and so that becomes a problem. He talks about how some people are in a family where the situation at home is calm and comfortable, and there are no like there's no violence or drinking or fighting or whatever, and that allows them to do their homework versus others who come from, like, I don't know, if they're in an area that's not safe, and this happens here in Egypt as well, 
or or the, the their the parents are fighting, or there's all sorts of these circumstances going on. And he talks about how as teachers, when we assign students to do something at home and then they don't do it or they don't do it well, that we need to question all these things that could be happening at the micro level in their in the in, for each individual student. It's not really something that you can start your course knowing that you will have these inequalities in your class. You just have to be open to understanding what might be causing inequalities between your students. And mm -hmm. so I love that he does that, and he talks about that. Um, and another person, go on. Did you? Someone wanted to ask something, right? Oh, no, go ahead, Mahai. You were on a roll. Okay. <laughs> and the other person I wanted to talk about is Anne Gagné, who, who talks a lot about accessibility. And so in how a lot of the stuff that we do online might not be accessible to people who have a person who are colorblind or whatever. They're, they're certain, or dyslexic, those, those disabilities are not so visible. Mm -hmm. Like if someone is, is blind or, or deaf, we, it's pretty, pretty obvious and pretty well known and you, you find a way to deal with it. But, but the world isn't designed for people who are, for example, dyslexic or colorblind, even though it's actually very, pretty straightforward to design everything that you do online in a way that addresses them. It's not difficult, it's just that it's not done. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I thought that that's another angle to it that, that usually when we talk about technology we don't think about it in, that, in, that, in those terms. Mm -hmm. Joe, were you going to say something? Yeah, I did want to say something. I was thinking as, we were, as you were talking about colonialism or anti-colonialism, I was thinking about uh, you know, central to equity conversations where I work is to me, sometimes we leave out the importance of anti-racism, right? And so, and and I also want to think about, you know, a lot of times the optimism or the spirit of inquiry that educators bring to working with digital tools in the classroom, mm -hmm. usually for the first time. And so, mm -hmm. I want to think I want to think with the group about like about the possibilities and opportunity spaces of open online courses like. CL MOOC to to engage in questions about you know how might these digital tools be tools for anti-racism or anti-colonialism because in my experience you know you know new educators new to the profession warm to these questions and and vibrant communities circle around these questions and I think that you know different than uh, different than like the uh, you know the star the star professor who's just recording their, their lectures on YouTube, when we, when we invite a community to really think together and network, you know, they will take up these big questions like how can these tools be tools for anti-racism and anti-colonialism? And, and are these open online courses the opportunity space that I think they are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a particular example recently. Google, the company, started a an educator online uh, certification kind of program where it was in trying to engage educators and it's it first started by claiming that 57,000 people or something like that uh, signed up from around the world it involved the, the first lady of the United States in one of these pitches and um, it's then finally it said there were presenters from 12 countries and I thought hmm how did it come down from 57,000 people to people from 12 countries probably 12 of them and then turns out there were some 50, 120, no, 900 something, something views on the uh, uh, on the uh, uh, Google Hangout on air. There are 14 uh, colleagues watching us at this time, and I'm thinking that's a pretty interesting uh, proportion here, a ratio. Uh, so the claims of access 
do not translate. Sometimes, as you can see, invisible numbers below videos or those claims beyond the numbers and the technological access itself, they don't make any sense around the world. Because if you listen to that pitch made by one of the facilitators of the Google um, uh, online seminar series, it was so quintessentially North American, American concept. And it is so odd to listen to those things and listen to those people assuming that people talk about education in the same terms around the world. Just try the word assignment when you, you land in five different parts of the world and see how it goes. Or the word syllabus, right? I mean, it's fascinating how these fundamental issues of basic terms, fundamental issues of basic epistemological worldviews about learning and teaching and teacher-student relationship, all of these things, these existential issues that Laura was talking about, I would even break them down into educational, sociological, political, and economic existential issues. And then the fact that these things do not translate across borders, even when the massive open online courses are available and accessible for everybody. I mean, I, sometimes I have to wonder who those 50,000 people are signing up for the American Star Professors courses around the world are. It could be people like me, who were, even while, while they are in their home country, in, in Nepal, India, China, wherever, they're already part of a global elite. Uh, if not economically elite, then educationally elite, somehow already connected. And, and then narrow down that from the 50,000 people in the class, there may be actually, if you look into the actual people engaged from around the world, there may be 200. And of the 200, they'll pick that one guy who brags about how wonderful the course was, and then they'll use that person as a promotional tool. And if that's access, I am sorry, humanity. Mm -hmm. Oh. Is 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 this a good time to, to, for me to pick on up on your point, uh, Sam? It, yes. As you were speaking, it reminded me. I have a colleague who who says that you get good cholesterol and you get bad cholesterol, and in the same way, you get good <laughs> diversity and you get bad diversity. And he's, oh, wow. he, his his point his point is that the kind of uh, diversity that is uh, often flouted and uh, spoken about um, is the kind of uh, elite diversity, so the kind of global elite that has the cultural capital to engage in these kinds of open online courses. Um, that's the good diversity, that's enriching, but that's actually for those who already have the literacies to uh, have these conversations and who can share a language, whereas uh, those who uh, don't have those kind of literacies, who don't have the kind, of, can't afford the kind of access that they might need, uh, don't have the smartphones. Uh, that's that's the much more difficult kind of diversity, and that's the kind that is uh, much more, uh, much much less um, exciting to to talk about and to promote and to address. And also the, the cultural literacies. Remember there was a, an article recently published in Ed Context by my colleague Sharif, if Malala was my student, and he'd seen Malala on John Stewart, and he was thinking, what if she was my student, and how would that change the way I teach? And then I was thinking about Malala as an example of a person who got West, Western attention, and she, I think she now lives in England or something, but she, the situation she's in, her bravery, and of course, and I love what she's done with it. But there, are, and like she always says, there are hundreds and thousands of girls who are like her who go through the same thing every day. They go through that risk in order to get educated. And then in, in a country like Palestine, that's just the way life is. 
anybody going out of their home has risks dying, and nobody really focuses on that, you know. Uh -huh. um, and just uh -huh. the person who got the attention, and it's good that she has the literacy to raise awareness about these issues, but, but it's a much broader issue, and it's not even just about girls, and it's just not just about her country. It's, it's in so many different places in the world that, 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 you know, that it's risky to go to school. Um, but this, you yeah. know, the West just hangs on to this one person, and then she becomes like, and I admire her, but, you know, <laughs> there are millions like her oh that God. don't get that attention. It's just scary to even think about that. Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, so true. And um, I, when I think about the sort of like the connections, right, and the things that we can do in these uh, online spaces, and we talk about uh, these sort of like transnational connections, these, um, I guess you could say translingual connections, right, uh, across languages. Um, and it brings me back to this interesting story. Uh, I um, had a student who was struggling in uh, Spanish class, and um, I just I, and I, I I think it's an easier class, right? So for anybody who's like willing to do the work, but I just asked him, why do you need to know Spanish? And his response was, so I can get a job, right? And not not so that they can like we can connect uh, culturally across across countries and share in each other's sort of like joys and struggles, but no, I need to know the language so I can get a job, right? <laughs> and so I was like, do you, first of all, I just asked him, like, do you really believe that? And um, you, you could tell, like, in, in the motivation for learning a new new language, right? And what, what what's it all for, right? And when, when you talk about these stories, like, very um, tragic stories of, uh, from from uh, Palestine and the struggle they're going through from uh, is Israel is it's very um, I always say like the, the the conversation that's happening in equity or equity is the balance between or the, how we make the balance between what's difficult and what's necessary and in so many ways we always have like let ourselves like oh that's too difficult to do and not long enough have we just said these things are necessary. Anti-racism is necessary. Um, Anti-colonialism anti is necessary. Anti-imperialism is necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in our, I think our work, right, is to really start to spread that uh, through our classrooms and really be uh, subversive about it. Because I, I believe that we will always have to be subversive about it. I don't think that the, the power structures that are set up today are set up to want to do that on their own. It's something that we will have to do as people. Yeah, yeah. And um, speaking of that, uh, I mean, it, it, I'm just going to comment on something that's happening in the U.S., right? Like the Confederate flag, the fact that, yes, they're going to take it down or they took it down, but the fact that there are still a few people who didn't want to take it down, that is important. <laughs> it should have been done like ages ago. I can't, I can't, actually, I can't believe that it's still there. Yeah, exactly, Chris. And then the Donald Trump, that he would say what he said about Mexicans, and that some people would not be upset about, that some people would not be upset about, that's a problem. It's not a problem that 90% of the people are upset about, it, or probably less than 90, but anyway. Oh, he's so soaring, just, in his, he's rising in his polls, which is... Uh, it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. I think it says to, it speaks to what Chris was talking about. Some things are necessary. Some conversations are necessary, and spreading the word about them is necessary, and the power structures are not going to change anytime soon, so we're always going to be struggling for this, but we need to foreground it, I think, 
Uh, and I think just what Chris just said now is just that we don't talk about these things often enough, on, even if we're talking about them a lot. On on a on a more optimistic note, though, sometimes I also think that the fact that the person would learn Spanish language um, in order to get a job is one of the reasons. But I think we have to uh, reinforce the other reasons without worrying too much about that one reason, because like at least the person is learning it, right? I was talking to some uh, a colleague uh, in uh, in a university in the south here, who said that he's not worried about people paying too much attention to language instead of teaching and learning in the case of international students, because he then can invite people to come learn language and then use as a, an entry point to actually <laughs> engage those students about the actual challenges that they have, so that the moment you see an international student, you don't say, "Oh, you're an international student, you have a language problem." No. Actually, I haven't read the article yet. <laughs> so, uh, I, I was sick, right? <laughs> so, um, but at least you get that person's attention. So, I guess these technology can also serve the same way. I think we can say, hey, technology, cool, yay, and then see how many people come in. And then we can have the good, real, real good conversation. Sometimes I think of it that way, otherwise it, it can be a little depressing. <laughs> One thing I'm reminded of, um, recently the ISTE conference was going on and I wasn't able to attend and ISTE certainly serves you know, its purpose as an organization and I think you know, gets appropriate criticism for how vendor driven it is and, and how, you know, how you know, though it's a membership organization of educators, you know, it's largely funded by vendors. Mm. Um, but during that conference as the hashtag you know, was starting to pop through my, my uh, Twitter feed, a hashtag that did trend was teaching racism, and it was the same time as the the the, the uh, Confederate flag was coming down. And this hashtag didn't seem to be generated by educators. In fact, it, it seemed to be generated by citizens, you know, primarily citizens of color, who just got on a got on a tear about all the ways schools teach racism, and you know, and promote racism. And to me. I was moved that that was trending at the time where this, you know, this conference that does have a tendency to, to you know, fetishize tools was also going on. And it was, for me, it was a moment of optimism because I think that, you know, the work we do in these open online spaces and when we invite educators to do production-centered work and write the web, we invite them to start creating channels and authoring, authoring conversations that are really important like that, like how are we teaching racism? inadvertently. Exactly, yeah. It's like during the Arab Spring, a lot of national media, especially TV in the United States, were literally saying that Facebook brought about this revolution. I didn't, I was, I, I laughed, it was so uh, awful. But at the same time, I thought, oh, through Facebook, you're at least talking about Egypt at this time, which is great. <laughs> While talking about Facebook, by the way, while saying that nonsensical thing that Facebook brought about the revolution. Because we're running slow on, or because we're running low on time, and Jeffrey Kiefer from uh, Twitter is wisely recommending that we kind of wrap up and, and maybe wrap up with some suggestions for next steps. I wonder okay. if we have any suggestions for next steps. I'm about essential faculty issues. Cut off. Uh, I, I want Laura to write more about existential yes. issues that she mentioned. Yes, please. I'd like to read. Recommendation that. number one. 
Um, I think that we should continue to have these conversations in the classroom because the, I, I taught a course last semester uh, called World Rhetoric and uh, Maha indirectly contributed to it. Um, and, and when in the beginning students were not sure how we could bring these issues of rhetorical traditions and other parts of the world, issues how, of technology and again, this connection and issues of access and, um, and in some sense equity. But but by the end of the semester, the students were so inspired to actually broaden their horizons. I think our students in any part of the world are interested in broadening their horizons. I don't think we can sit there and complain about the systems or societies or the lack of interest or the an active suppression of uh, you know discourses that that promote equity and equality. Um, so I guess students. Go to your students, do in ways that are digestible, in small doses, uh, in ways that will inspire them, because they want this next generation. I'm hopeful about our students, and I think we should really start with the students and continue with the students. Yeah, I mean, um, for me, um, I think there's a, um, I think history can really help us, because uh, when, we, when we use that term, new technologies, right, we, we don't talk about how they are used in the same old ways. Not a different mindset that that well, and some some people are using different mindsets, but for overall, it feels the same same sort of uh, economic um, implications that are that are happening with our technologies, and how people are always fighting against that. So um, Howard Zinn, a People's History of the United States, is a great way to get deeper into the story that is America. Uh, VJ Prashad, Prashad um, history of the uh, World South, I, I, it's a better title for it. I'll try to share it if I can. Um, and just to really start to realize that we're all connected in, in, in the struggle to, you know, uh, liberate ourselves and live more joyful lives, um, more human lives, and not just um, economic productivity. So I, I, I think that's important for me, and I think about the goals that I want to bring to the classroom. It is about that, and I think equity starts from there. Revisit and review history with your students? With, yes, right? definitely. Yeah. And think about justice a little more. Yeah. Still, yeah. Waiting. Laura, any last word from you? Yeah, I think the uh, this kind of uh, values-laden advocacy around technology is really important. I think the the notions that we've mentioned or touched on around the affordances. We have to be really careful of, and I think it's really important to keep these kinds of discussions around the values that we afford the technologies um, is a really important uh, strategic advocacy role that we have to keep on playing. Yeah, so it is my pleasure to thank everyone for this awesome conversation, and I'm sad to bring the conversation to a close, but thanks, everybody. Um, there will be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way that you can share with your networks. So this wraps up the first webinar of this July 2015 series spotlighting uh, themes and questions related to CL MOOC. Um, let's see. Me and this fabulous outro. If you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV in 2015, please visit www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter.
Thanks again, everyone. We hope to see you, you online and in spaces, of course, like Seattle. It's not too late to join in there with the making, connecting, and learning. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you for uh, thank everybody you. for watching this. Thank now you.